episode 452 it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and today we're tackling one of my all-time favorite filmmakers the great russ meyer and who better with which to have this conversation than bradley cornish and dan pullen from four brains one did i say pullins or pullen i always fuck up your last name you're pulling my leg dan pullen that's right yeah, yeah, it's it's appropriate because I always fuck up Meyer's name, uh, Meyer. Uh, right, Even right. as Cass calls him Myers, but yeah, it, it is. Yeah. There is no S on it. In any case, you are the guys, the brainchild behind Four Brains, One Movie, and Twenty Six Movies from Hell. And y'all have been on the show many times before, and I've been on y'all's show many times before. So uh, welcome back to Wrong Real. But before we get down to Russ Meyer, let's start with Mr. Cornish. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've been up to lately, all that good stuff. Well, I've been doing a lot of uh, motherfucking podcast. Is it okay to swear on your program? Uh, you can get buck-ass naked and cover yourself in peanut butter and start masturbating if you so choose. <laughs> start. Yeah, sadly, this is not a live stream where you would see Dan Pullen positioning yes. himself in front of his uh, his webcam. <laughs> well, well, I've been doing a, a, a shitload of podcasting lately. We've been doing 26 movies from hell. We started at the beginning of the year or end of last year. And we are already, God, we're already up to our M episode. No, L episode we're going to do this week. I'm assuming and, y'all are going to include Fritz Lang's M in your M episode. No, we, we are not. What? Yes. And the reason, <laughs> the reason being is on our show, sometimes if we pick something that's too well known, it'll run away. 
with with the poll. We do a poll, and so we try to uh, try to do films that uh, people have talked about a little bit uh, less often, like Mamma Mia Two. Like what? What was that? Mamma Mia Two. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Dan's That's already given me. Uh, uh, we're talking to uh, uh, actually a great guest. You're gonna love him uh, uh, for episode U. And he's already making a shitload of under the Tuscan sun jokes, which is pissing me off. Oh, you know what? Dan, fuck. I, I, I just realized it. Up. Up. Oh, Up's glorious. Up's insane. It's a good movie. Up, have, my, up is in the, up. running neck and neck for one of Russ Meyer's strangest films by far. Even some of his regular collaborators were like, I don't know if I want to work on this one. This one's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, Dan, don't. Uh, uh, Dan, He's my uh, secretary for the show. Well, as Dan famously said during our roundtable at PJ Clark's, he's like, I do no work, but I have lots of ideas. So, What, it, what, well, what he does is he writes down uh, the ideas and then loses notes, and then he'll be like, fuck, we forgot to do up. But anyways, well, we and also yeah, just to avoid confusion, we are not referring to the Pixar film. The up right. the Pixar oh. film is quite different from the Russ Meyer film, but the Russ Meyer film has an exclamation mark at the end, and it is so bonkers, but well worth watching. I actually own that one on DVD. Are you ready for the joke of the show? Bring it. Uh, but both films have a lot of balloons in them. Ah, uh, boom. <laughs> there you go. Holy Dan cow. didn't even laugh at that one. <laughs> It's too much setup, man. I'm sorry. I, oh, I'm terrible at joking. That one's definitely on the nose. Well, Dan, there's a lot of great guitar music in all these Russ Meyer flicks, and you occasionally like to do a little fucking around on the old guitar. Are you going to treat us to some of your snazzy skills on today's show? <laughs> um, I didn't plan on it, but do uh, you know what I could do? Hold on. I can, uh, I can hand bone. <laughs> I will give you um, this. I wrote this three seconds ago in my head. Very nice. And this is um, this is my interpretation of the soundtrack to uh, Motorcycle. All right, that's a that's a wrong <laughs> deal. First, no one's played an instrument on the show before. <laughs> My friend Brian Rule read me a poem one time, but I think that's the closest we've come, but I appreciate that. But what I love about a motorcycle, you get all this great transition where it's almost like a 50s or 60s TV show where there'll be like a guitar twang as it spins and transitions. To the next, and it's like, is this a, an episode of Batman? Like, what the hell is this? But I love the use of guitar in Russ Meyer's oeuvre. Yeah, motor, motorcycles bonkers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to give people, just to set the stage, I'm going to give a quick intro into the world of Russ Meyer before we really start sinking our teeth into it. But for people who are not aware, Russ Meyer actually got to start as a combat photographer in World War II. He frequently said it was the best time he ever had in his life. He apparently really loved getting as close to the action as possible, which his crew was less psyched about. But when he got home, also while he was abroad, he claims that Ernest Hemingway paid for the prostitute that plucked his V-card from him and introduced him to the ways of sex. That sounds like more bullshit than fact, but it makes a great yarn. But in the 50s, he became a great pinup photographer, shot frequently for Playboy, including his wife Eve, who eventually became his business manager and producer. Their, I mean, the production company was named after her, and apparently she was a very cunning, savage businesswoman in a lot of respects, and a lot of his early success was due to, uh, due to her help. 
But after doing a few of these films that he referred to as nudie cuties, which are almost laughably innocent and wholesome by some of his uh, compare in comparison to some of his later movies, he eventually decided to set his sights a little higher. Started making these black and white, down and dirty, grindhouse drive-in movies, and he referred to it later on as his. His, I think he called it the Steinbeck period, and he also referred to it occasionally as his Gothic Quartet. And the Mm. films are Lorna, Mudhoney, Motorcycle, and Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. And as Roger Ebert says, this quartet of movies is as as entertaining and distinctive and original as any films from the 60s as you can hope to come across. But, Mr. Cornish, when did you first become aware of this completely, wildly independent singular voice in the world of filmmaking, Mr. Russ Meyer. Well, I've been aware of Russ Meyer for a long time. And frankly, I was a fair weather uh, Meyer's uh, watcher or Meyer, Meyer film watcher. A uh, faster pussycat kill kill is basically what I know. Uh, and at a couple of, uh, I would say probably three years ago, I started, uh, it was kind of when I was jumping on Twitter and I was uh, going through some of Meyer's films, and I was GIF happy at the time, or GIF happy. And I was doing and a GIF's lot the of peanut butter. GIF is the yeah, whatever phenomenon. Whatever you fucking uh, <laughs> you know, kids with your technology. And GIF isn't even terms. allowed at schools anymore. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who has a child, and yeah, if you, you bring GIF to school, you basically might be accused of like attempted a murder, murder weapon. Murder. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I. Yeah, that's why I always walk around with just a little bit of peanut butter on my elbows, in case I need to kill somebody. <laughs> that's gonna get cut out. He's he's like he's just talking about fucking putting uh, peanut butter in his elbows. This guy's weird, man. I'm cutting that shit Second out. Second time peanut butter's come up this podcast. Anyways, uh, yeah. So uh, the the clip that I noticed right off the bat was one from uh, Mud Honey. And it was the the clip of uh, uh, kind of near the end of the film where she's playing with the kitten. Oh, it's a beautiful scene. Yeah, that was um, the character's name is Eula, and Russ Meyer was notoriously in love with the actress who played her, uh, Rena. Arena. I'm blanking on her last name. In any case, yeah. she plays a mute until the very last scene. But Russ Meyer was infatuated with her. But that that little shot with the kitten's adorable. Yeah, I'm like, wow, that's framed perfectly. The lighting is amazing, and the photography is really crisp. So I started looking at a lot more of the films, and I watched Mud Honey a bunch of times. And that, actually, until I just watched Faster Pussycat Kill Kill again today, uh, I I think Mud Honey was my favorite film. I think it's his most uh, underrated movie in his whole filmography. Yeah, and I think, uh, and it was really just uh, what you're talking about. Like, I've never heard him use the term Steinbeck, but it reminded me of Steinbeck stories mm-hmm. and also a little Tennessee Williams, you know, because yep. you get, you got all that. But it's done in a way where it's almost like a, a borderline uh, farce, but it doesn't go so far where it's me and Dan talk about this on our show a lot. When things are like so purposeful, and uh, where it, it becomes like a, ob- obnoxious, I almost feel like know? he accidentally makes better movies than he sets out to originally make. Like there's some magic in him 
that he's not even really fully aware of, but the combination of his <clears throat> unique camera angles, his crazy montages, his bizarre dialogue and voiceovers, and his incessant commentary on small town life and American values. But he's a completely, utterly singular artist. And Roger Ebert also said, like the highest praise you can give to Russ Meyer, so you can watch five seconds from any of his movies and immediately recognize it as a Russ Meyer movie. Nobody's playing in the same space at all. And people, whenever I mention that my admiration for me, oh, he's like him because he shows girls with huge tits. Granted, every single movie that he ever made has just these Amazonian, gravity-defying, statuesque, strong women that are unlike anything you've ever seen before, but there's a hell of a lot more going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I think one of his favorite terms that he would use is cantilevered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, his, his command of the English language, and oftentimes the French language, when we watch him in interviews, it's like, this guy's like the most well-read, literate man I've ever come across. It's ridiculous. Well, and, and one thing that that I notice also with preparing for this show is in, in diving into a lot of his films over a short period of time, like literally the last 24 hours, I think I watched all of them uh, that we're talking oh, sure. about That's today. That's easy to do. You can binge them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, – but there, the thing that I, that I noticed was his – ability to have a very distinctive voice to be a very distinctive artist and to have a lot of artistry in his films and create a for him at least a beautiful lifestyle out of it mm -hmm. uh, he really enjoyed what he is doing and part of it i think was he wasn't setting out to make an art film he was uh, he is an artistic person who was making films that I mean literally he would talk very he talks very often about literally being turned on during the film. He's aroused while, while shooting, yeah. and he would make <laughs> yeah. his crew basically force like swear swear off sex for the duration of the shoot because he wanted his crew equally horny to be, you know, just to imbue the film with that much more carnality and pent up desire. But Dan, right. did, when did you first get exposed to this guy? Because it's one of those things where I first saw Fast Pussycat Kill Kill in college. And then when I got to L.A., they were having a Russ Meyer retrospective at the American Cinematheque, and he was introducing the movies. And so I got to see Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, and Super Vixens, all with him in attendance. And he was already suffering from Alzheimer's, but he could kind of hold it together for the wow, interviews. Wow, that's a great – what a treat. Oh, it was, it was killer. But so for well over 20 years now, I've been a fan. But Dan, when did you first get invited into this completely, utterly unique world? So uh, I think the first thing I saw was Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, um, like you in college. But I would say I um, it was more like I looked at it versus watched it. It was like on at a party and I kind of knew what it was. Um, but if I had. If you had asked me what the plot of it was before, like, going back into this deep dive, I would have told you, like, that the girls were the good guys and they were trying to save the teeny <laughs> girl and stuff. Like, that, that was kind of like, you know, it was just there. I was well, drinking. the central characters. Right. So um, then after that, uh, got really into Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, that was something I saw probably a couple years after that. Um, I think my brother and his his best friend saw it first, and it was one of those ones that you got to see this, and we watched it just over and over. Um, then after that, I think I saw um, Ultra Vixens, and that was about it. 
and really for me, I didn't, I didn't put a lot into Russ Meyer. I, I, I think I was guilty of just seeing him as uh, an exploitation filmmaker. Um, for me, like Roger Corman and Russ Meyer sort of went together, um, where, you know, you could just, they're just making stuff to churn it out. And, super super low know, budget and wildly successful. Yeah. Um, but God, diving, diving into um, the history of, you know, like you said, with, you know, the war and stuff, and especially learning about um, how you were saying, you know, he, he kept a very strict set and, you know, all this stuff. He was very workmanlike. He actually reminded me a lot of my absolute favorite artist of all time, and that's Frank Zappa. Who, Interesting. I mean, I mean, both, yeah. I think both of them would be equally flattered to hear that. Yes. And, you know, it's another one of those things where if you bring up Frank Zappa, people automatically are like, oh, Bobby Brown and Don't Eat the Yellow Snow. And, and they only know this. I love Bobby Brown. That's a great song. <laughs> hey there, well, people love Bobby Brown. Yeah, I'm not going to sing Zappa tunes for y'all, but I'll do that for a, <laughs> night on a later date. <laughs> we'll do a Zappa episode at some point. Oh, all right. You know, Zappa has this, again, like a workmanlike attitude no drugs uh on you know for his band everybody's everybody's clean everybody has to practice like 10 hours a day the music's hard as hell to play yes right so i saw parallels now um between these two guys i don't put uh russ meyer quite in the zappa hall of fame for myself yet but i mean i would play uh, zappa among the greatest composers of the 20th century alongside duke ellington or aaron copeland or anyone you care to mention i think he's up in there in that that, that elite yes well right. you know what i i used to admire him as as well but i've been uh, doing a little research on the world's greatest sinner right the uh, mm-hmm. timothy carey film yeah and he uh did the soundtrack that, for that. yeah he was like 21 years old and he did the soundtrack for it. He went on the Steve Allen show after he did the film. Yeah, is a famous, yeah I saw that. Uh, yeah, it was a famous, a uh, yeah, he was playing a bicycle. So he like had his shtick and the, his little entree to get onto the show and uh, you know start his career, basically. And he was given uh, Carrie's film shit. Mm-hmm. He, he was basically saying it was like this, this uh, shitty movie. <laughs> well, that he was uh, he was that he hired a bunch of Skid Row actors for, and I love that movie. And I think uh, if it wasn't for uh, Timothy uh, Carey, we wouldn't have a lot of the cramps wouldn't exist. But to be fair, anytime Zappa talks about anybody, unless it's like Varez. He pretty much shits yeah. on every artist in history. So he's got like he's got very few influences, unless it's like a few doo-wop bands. But I don't want to get too derailed on Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's yeah, a yeah. for another yeah. day. But what you <laughs> mentioned about the Russ Meyer sets, everybody says well, they felt like they were raiding the beaches of Normandy with like a very small elite group. You'd have five mm-hmm. or six old army buddies. You'd have a few actors, some of whom are professional, some of whom are less so, and some of whom are also army buddies. And they would just go up into the desert for sometimes eight days, ten days. I mean, these are $50,000 movies. And they would work their fucking asses off. Yeah. The actresses were talking mm-hmm. about how they come in at the end of the day and they would have sand just embedded in their eyelashes and skin. And it, they were not being spoiled and pampered in any way, shape, or form. But apparently Russ Meyer 
really loved just getting out in the sun, carrying cameras up like up mountains, setting up uh, his tripod and going to He's work. A nature lover. Yeah, he loved just getting the hell away from Hollywood and having yeah. total control. And apparently, he loved just like the challenge of dealing with the younger actors and trying to figure out ways to make them all get a proper night's rest and not party and not screw around so they would feel good and strong and mm. healthy in the morning. And it sounds like his movies were an absolute blast, but. You were beat down to death by the end of every shooting day. Yeah, one of the things I, uh, I, you know, I couldn't quite figure out, and maybe one of you guys could clear this up for me. I saw in interviews where he said that they they shot Motor Psycho, and then they had the idea to do basically the same sort of thing, but with girls. It's the same the movie, gang. basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. But as far as I could tell they were released like a week apart from each other. It, it makes no sense. Like maybe they thought they were for different audiences perhaps because motorcycle was a giant success and faster post was not. Yeah. But in terms of the release schedule also, because back then they would release them in such a different way where they would kind of spread slowly from town to town. And he played a, he played a lot of small towns and flyover country, but he always prided himself on being able to play at regular theaters as opposed to smut theaters and porn theaters, that sort of Mm. thing. And I love how he lived in that strange gray area where he's not going to play at like the most prestigious theater in LA or New York, but he could play at regular theaters because he wasn't making, everyone thinks he was a pornographer, but if you watch Motorpsycho, there's, you have to look really hard to even see a hint of n- nudity in one scene. And if you're blink, you'll miss it. So I think right. sometimes, he, and also Faster Pussy Got Kill Kill, no nudity. So yeah. that, I think that reputation is totally undeserved. He did enjoy shooting Naked Beautiful Women, but it was by no means his, like his sole attribute as a filmmaker. And it's what allowed him to basically, I mean, he would play sometimes in some of these small town theaters of like 40,000 people. He'd play for the entire year. Like Vixen played mm. over a year in one town that had only like 12,000 people living there. Like can you imagine how many times they saw Vixen? Yeah. And some of these movies would make, you know, $1 million, sometimes $2 million and off a $50,000 budget. It just, he was set for life. He could basically be the master of his own destiny. Well, one thing I was talking about earlier was how he uh, is almost an accidental artist where he he was obviously doing this uh, in part to make money, and then also doing it because he likes uh, he likes lovely ladies, obviously. And so he he and he you know he started doing this in the war, so it was just kind of a, a natural profession for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I I recently uh, did a show on Donald Kamel on the uh, Dinner with Lynch show. I talked to Marcus Penn about uh, Donald Kamel, and he's a director of uh, Demon Seed and uh, White, of, White of the Eye performance uh, he did with Rogue. But he was an artist, and he was hell-bent on making sure that he did art his way, and he was always in confrontations with uh, the money people, and he basically just had a hellacious life. Uh, with his confrontations with the, with uh, the the distributors with the studios, and he ended up uh, being like super depressed and killed himself eventually, you know. So Russ Meyer, uh, what did he make? Twenty three films, and they were all films that, for the from everything that I can tell, they were all movies that he wanted to make. His his least uh, 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 happy circumstance 
is probably beyond the Valley of the Dolls because that was his, uh, his. He was doing it with the studio, and then right after that, he went back to his own independent. Yeah, he made stuff. it with Fox, and they insisted upon all these cuts for an R rating, and they still didn't get the R rating. He's like, "Well, shit, can I put the other stuff like back in? You made me cut, but it was, by that point, I was too late." So, but the movie, as Roger Ebert said, it made roughly like forty million dollars off a one million dollar budget, which was just. I mean, maybe it's a $5 million budget. It was a mm-hmm. little more lavish production. Wildly successful, and Fox was almost embarrassed by how successful it was. Um, but we're going to talk about him being an accidental artist. What's interesting is that one of, my, one of the parts of his style that I find most compelling was also a result of limited means. He didn't have the time or the energy or the crew to lay down a bunch of track and do a bunch of fancy dolly uh-huh. shots and things like that. So it was a lot of setups. He had like roughly four times as many setups per movie as your average independent film. And so you have this crazy editing style from all these crazy angles, but you'll notice the camera occasionally, he'll tilt it, and he'll, but he won't ever move it. And mm. so you, you get this wild experimental editing style that I think gets more and more sophisticated as time goes on. And starting with like Harry, Cherry, and Raquel up through Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, you're like, oh my God, this guy's like a fucking genius level editor. But it all <laughs> came about because he just could not afford to get that camera moving. Well, I, I actually, I, I, I love this comparison. I just uh, came up with this today. Uh, I, I compare, uh, this is a comparison of the show. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Terrence, uh, he kind of reminds me of Terrence Malick a little bit in the sense that, it, you know, Terrence Malick is doing something completely different, but he is kind of uh, doing his own fucking thing. I mean, he's irritating the hell out of me with the, like, the last four movies he's done, you know, but I like some of his earlier films. Don't, and, don't bring that uh, up with Marcus. Marcus will eat you alive. No, he loves no, but, the last four movies by Terrence Malick. It, exactly. But I think one of the reasons why he probably likes it is because Malick is doing his own fucking thing. It just doesn't jive with me that much. Yeah. Um, but he's doing it, it his own way, his, art, art, his own artistic way. And like his uh, Malick has a thing with the blowing grass. And he has and the thing with girls, the gold. like spinning yeah, in the, circles. and Yeah. Uh, the golden, the golden hour. Uh, it's called magic hour. Golden hour is yeah, very the, close to the golden shower, which is quite a oh, different thing. Oh, oh <laughs> fuck that and fuck Frank Zappa. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, um, so the go- <laughs> what, what did you call it? The golden hour. Well, it's called magic hour, but the golden fuck hour. It, yeah. I call it the golden hour because it's gold color. Okay. <laughs> It's a magic, okay, the magic hour. Or as Frank Zappa once said, I can take about an hour on the Tower of Power as long as I gets a little golden shower. Okay, now just There stop. we go. Yeah, see, I just, I just proved to Dan I'm an actual Zappa fan. <laughs> you know what, that's a, that's a problem with uh, dealing with this shit and uh, with people loaded with Zappa comebacks. So, you know what, fuck you guys, I got peanut butter on my elbows and I will rub it on you. Yes, okay, please. so uh, Russ, but, so Russ Meyer... His waving grass is breasts, and his uh, it's true, uh, or the shapely form of a woman. And it's not just the breasts. He also uh, appreciates almost like a classic like 1940s hourglass. Buxom. You know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there, he got confronted at Yale during a panel discussion where some an angry woman accused him of being of nothing but a breast man, and his immediate reply was, "That's only the half of it." <laughs> <laughs>
road leads. Then hear this, all ye people. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both high and low, rich and poor together. Do you indeed speak righteousness? Do you judge uprightly, all ye sons and daughters of men? Or do you do unto others as they do unto you? And do you judge as others judge? And woe to the hypocrite! Thy form is fair to look upon, but thy heart is filled with carcasses and dead men's bones. For as you judge, you shall be judged. And if you condemn, you are condemned. Then who will rise up with me against the evildoers? Who will stand up with me against the workers of iniquity? None. Then pass on. But there is no return. Maybe it's about time we start cracking open some of these flicks. Now, originally we were talking about just doing his three films in 1965, but as uh, but as uh, Bradley mentioned, it'd be kind of remiss or criminal if we didn't also use Lorna as a a gateway into this. I think Lorna is the least of the four, but well worth watching because. It stars Lorna Maitland, and Lorna Maitland might have the most statuesque build of any woman I've ever seen. She's not giant like Kitten Natividad or Anita Ekberg or any of those like you know incredibly outrageous physiques, but she's just perfect. And apparently, she was pregnant while they shot Lorna, which added to. I mean, it's something he would employ with his still photography in the fifties. He loved shooting pregnant women who were just a little bit pregnant, to just to give them a little bit of that extra <laughs> oomph, and and it works. So, yeah. Bradley, since you recommended it, what it is about Lorna, because obviously this is a, a major transition point, a major pivot point in his career, what is it about Lorna that stands out to you? Well, if you, uh, I posted this on Twitter, it was the first couple of minutes of Lorna, and it is basically a preacher standing in the road. It, yeah, it's beautiful. like a Lucio Fulci movie or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a fucking it's just beautiful shot. I love that shot. Yeah. It's a it, preacher stand in the road. The camera goes in. And I don't know how they did it, but there's like very little jitter on it. It's just perfectly done. And it just uh, it hits the it hits the preacher. And the preacher basically gives this soliloquy, this biblical soliloquy. He wrote on, the movie. He apparently wrote the movie in four days. It, the preacher, yep. the guy who wrote. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, that that right there is the uh, note of trivia of the show. Uh, yeah. And I know it's your show, but this is what <laughs> I'm just going to call that the most important trivial. Well, I, I'm sh- I, I shamelessly poach every little detail that I can from IMDb trivia, and I, I guess I always fall. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Mis- I maybe foolishly assume it's all correct. So according to IMDb trivia, that's what I learned. Like the uh, grandson of uh, of the guy who actually wrote that is like that fucking asshole. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't write that. No, I'm kidding. So, anyways, uh, so the preacher it, it, it zooms in on him, and then he basically talks about uh, hypocrisy, and he what he's doing is he's laying out uh, from uh, the period of his nudie cuties, his pinup period. He is realizing, okay, I'm making films for a bigger audience, for the public. So it's almost like his uh, his statement that he's making, you know, it's basically, you know, you're lustful, you know, you're going to look at these films 
and don't judge the people in the films for being lustful because you're lustful too. And it's, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's so wonderful because it's from uh, introductions, like uh, director introductions where director is saying, I, you know, I'm here, you know, sort of thing. Uh, I can't really think of a whole lot more that were so, you know, precise and just right on. Yeah, ambiguity is not Russ Meyer's forte. He likes to tell you precisely oh. what his movies are about. He actually even had a quote about it. He said, the movie was a brutal examination of the important realities of power, prophecy, freedom, and justice in our society against a background of violence and lust where simplicity is only a facade. Like, he is the best salesperson in movie history for just giving you these outlandish, over-the-top expressions that immediately make you interested in a movie. Well, yeah, and then uh, right after, you know, right after that, it just goes into like full on just uh, uh, mellow, you know, your basic melodrama with lots of, you know, breast exposure and, you know, drunken fighting. Like and more titillation. I mean, like Lorna Maitland, she shows her boobs a little bit in this. And she has that great fantasy about going to L.A. with this beautiful montage of all these restaurants and nightclubs. And it's I, I used to say. Well, I'm always changing my mind on who my favorite Russ Meyer was. I used to say Ushi Degard, but maybe just got more recently been watching these Lorna Maitland scenes. But Dan, save me before I start drooling on this podcast. What do you what, have you had a chance to see Lorna Maitland in action in Russ Meyer's Lorna? I did not watch Lorna. Fair oh, enough. you dude, you missed out, man. Yeah. Well, it's it's it, it is the lesser of the two between this and Mud Honey, but and also it was a last minute addition. But yeah, so I'm I'm taking I'm taking uh, college classes right now. I'm, I'm back in school. So I have it's no to, excuse. You know, very strict with my, uh, you know, my timing. Yeah, yeah, but you'll watch Blood and Fucking Black Lace. I will, <laughs> after this podcast, you'll be able to teach a college class in 20th century perversion. So. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So when you get yeah, we when we dropped in Lorna on uh, Sunday after I was done with my, I had to do a PowerPoint presentation and this and that, and I'm like, all right, let me put this on. I fell right to sleep. So. No worries at all. But when it comes to... uh, I actually liked it better than Mud Honey. Interesting. Well, when it comes to the topic of perversion and the erosion of morals, there's apparently Russ Meyer wanted this carved on his gravestone, and it's a a criticism by Charles Keating, the head of the Citizens of Decent Literature. But he wrote, he said, (laughs) more than anyone else of his time, Russ Meyer was responsible for the decay of values in American society, and Russ Meyer wanted to have underneath it, I was glad to do it. (laughs) It just, it sums up Russ Meyer so well. Yeah, you can tell uh, Keating got his goat a little bit, though. I saw a few interviews with uh, Russ Meyer, some like late night TV interviews uh, in like the last five years of his life or ten years, and uh, he would bring up Keating often. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he was a, he was a, a well read man, and he was aware of what was going on around him. And I think also because early on he spent so much time in and out of the courtroom defending some of his movies that he was very hyper aware of who his enemies were. Well, if you look at you know some of the other you know champions of uh, Lenny Bruce, for example. Okay. You know, uh, you look how you know tragic his his life was. You but he know, just got and, consumed by his routine. Instead of doing comedy, he would get up there and just talk about his latest legal troubles. And people are like, "We bought a ticket to see your show. We don't want to hear this shit." But, yeah, he. But he fought. He well, fought the battles so that all the other comedians for the next fifty years could have the freedom to say what they like. 
Well, they got they got sucked into it. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, Larry Flint, you know, as well, you know, he got sucked into the battle. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. and Meyer had Keating uh, railing against him very, very specifically. But Meyer, I don't know what his fucking formula was, but he was able to avoid being trapped. You know, that's one of those things that critics do that they fucking get off on is taking a good artist, you know, somebody who has a hell of a lot more talent than they ever will, and then trapping them into this web of negativity and uh, basically uh, destroying the artist. Yeah, he who lasts last mm. lasts longest, and yeah, Russ Meyer laughing all the way to the bank because his movies were <laughs> wildly popular. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because in get in learning about him, I was very curious about the psychology of the man. You know, um, his father left him was very early. He was uh, doted on by his mother, um, and then he goes off to war. Uh, you know, shoots all this footage. He seemed to he seemed to have an odd emotional complexity let's let's call it and i did not read the three volume uh, autobiography <laughs> oh, wow. uh, clean breast <laughs> clean breast i you know i didn't it's well, a beautiful uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a beautiful edition yeah it's actually been bound real nicely it's like three like <laughs> 500 page uh, of, volumes yeah one of the one of the things that really struck me um was uh you know we mentioned his wife eve and her death was uh, super tragic. She died in what what was the largest ever aviation accident. Um, or it was these two planes collided uh, at this airport in the Canary Islands. Um, and that's just the sort of thing that I would think would really fuck someone up because they seem to have a, a strong relationship, a strong working relationship and stuff. And it didn't seem to derail him so just like you're talking about with with the keating where he was able to just kind of move along i wonder if he had some type of emotional detachment i'm sure uh, a, a couple months in the field in 1944 1945 will will do that you've seen yeah. you've seen some things that make the rest seem uh, trivial by comparison yeah. yeah i think the uh your uh bullshit uh allowance meter you know is pretty is is pretty narrow i would think yeah 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 i, I mean it seems like most people when they got back like my grandfather would talk about all the time about when they got back they weren't going to wallow in self-pity or psychoanalysis they wanted to have families start businesses and plow ahead and they just had this incredible can-do spirit that made them uh get a lot of shit done and yeah russ meyer got a lot of fucking shit done i mean he made mm-hmm. his mark and these movies are just I mean, I, I've, I can drool over them for days, but just in the interest of time, I do want to start dipping our toes into Mud Honey. Just witness some scenes from Russ Meyer's sadistically sensual motion picture, Mud Honey, a taste of evil. 
heralding the return of incredibly voluptuous Lorna Maitland to the motion picture screen. <laughs> you better get your hands out of there. You're going to get in trouble. Why, well, I'd give him the look for free. Mudhoney, savor a slice of raw life that runs deep with the flavor of evil. Excellent carrying on is what they's doing. Never realized before, but you got almost as much as your sister. Your whole town knows you and shine laughter like old hound dog and rut Like the good book says, love one another. Oh, I'm for that, Brother Hassan. But anything else is one dollar cash money, Mr. Brinshaw. Well, now you take that caliph and the way he's been playing up to my handle. Adultery! Going home to that wife of yours for a change. Don't know why you come around here buying it anyway. You got more at home than a man can handle. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Maybe he can't handle it. Go on, Brother Acid. Take her in the other room and give her some. Salvation. I can pray for right here. Honey man, there's only one kind of suit that's right for Severin. And that's your birthday <laughs> Mud Honey presents to the screen four of the world's most voluptuous women. Bosomy Lorna Maitland, undulating and vivacious. Statuesque Raina Horton, primitive and predatory. Dusky Lee Ballard, earthy and wanton. Antoinette Christiani, basic and unfulfilled. All caught in the merciless coils of primitive passion and raw emotion. Mud honey can influence your very life. A rewarding experience that you shall never forget. Its rival humor, its graphic revelation of love, lust, passion, and sadistic violence surpasses unquestionably any depiction heretofore presented to the motion picture screen. For a taste of evil, see Mud Honey. This, I feel like it's like a couple notches below like Faulkner, but like <laughs> had, yeah. had Russ Meyer been perhaps a little bit more nuance and sensitivity it could have been Faulknerian but instead <laughs> it's just completely utterly deranged and insane has my favorite Russ Meyer regular Stuart Lancaster in here I, I absolutely think he's just he's brilliant every single Russ Meyer movie he ever appeared in you have the great Lorna Maitland back in action who's as mm-hmm. I mentioned before is a very very special individual and so Dan since um you didn't get a chance to dive into Lorna as much what is the premise of Mud Honey for people out there who have not seen this delightful picture. So, so this is um, a a guy is kind of drifting his way across the United States from uh, the Midwest, or he's trying to make it out to California, and he kind of stops in this little uh, backwoods town and gets work as a farmhand. Now, on the farm is uh, the far- the owner. His niece and the niece's husband. The niece's husband is a rat bastard. Yeah, the great uh, Hal Hopper, who's also yes. in Lorna. Yeah, yeah. Uh, frequenting the uh, the house of ill repute in the town, <laughs> and basically 
With only two bits in his pocket? (laughs) Yeah. He's got a quarter, and he's looking for some action. Um, (laughs) And the... uh, this movie was a complete shocker to me because, as I said, I had seen, I had kind of seen Faster Pussycat, and I'd seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and I'm thinking I'm just going to get a bunch of boobies. That's it. Just, you know, different scenarios where I can see boobies. And uh, this really was like a, an American Gothic tale, like like a Steinbeck uh, Dust Bowl you know, they, they talk of... Um, and it's Depression Era. It takes place during that period. Yes. Yeah, she, you know, she, uh, what's her name? Says, uh, you got the depression where you're at? And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... It really... And I was shocked by the the gravity of this story. Especially the use of religion in it. Like, uh, Russ Meyer loves tackling hypocrisy. And when you see the power of religion being used for evil purposes against good people... Mm-hmm. It's one thing. It's very ham-fisted. It's very obvious. It's very one-dimensional. But it is an interesting take because Russ Meyer is as kind of raw and pure pro-American as any filmmakers you're ever going to come across. And very rarely does he choose to undermine the pillars of society. However, hypocrisy is something he cannot abide, and he explores that big time in Mudhoney. Yeah, and that's uh, if you, you know, going back to the beginning of Lorna again, you know, it's that declaration of, uh, you know, I'm going to be after hypocrisy. And the, you know, the uh, uh, the re- religious aspect of uh, g- going into mud honey was uh, even heavier. You know, and you can tell that, uh, I don't know. It's Just uh, how quickly I don't... the villain becomes part of their inner circle and... And how he's able to twist their organization and the entire town to his advantage, basically turn it into this frenzied right. lynch mob that ultimately ends up turning against him. Yeah, in in a situation where the sinners, Caliph and uh, uh, the niece there, are the only really truly moral ones of the bunch. Yep. You know, she's she she's going to stay faithful to her marriage, even though. And Eula, Eula's just kind of like an innocent little like, yeah, like woodland fairy. Yep. And then, you know, they're, they're the ones trying to stop the lynch mob and, and be on the side of the, the law and do what's right. So, Well, if you look at the uh, situation, uh, you know, back in Depression era, you know, where everybody is out of work, you know, everybody was spending way too much time with each other. You know, everybody was getting cabin fevers, basically like an episode of Big Brother, you know, where everybody's just, uh, you know, attacking each other. You know, like in in Mud Honey, just there might be a little assault going on on occasion. There's fights. There's yelling. There's a maniacal laughter. Yeah, it's a very adversarial <laughs> movie. What's the name of the like the old the old lady who runs the whorehouse? I mean, she's a, she pops up again in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. But yeah. Russ Meyer loves finding these maniacs and then employing them again and again. And <laughs> there's these almost like ghoulish, garish, just horrific people like ugly people that he just finds delightful and he just keeps shoving them back in his movies but she is so goddamn funny in it but the movie's just a joy to watch in spite of all the kind of uh, religious persecution and things like that there's just moments of absolute joy when uh like clarabelle played by lorna maitland's out there swimming in the river and she's she says to the main character honey man there's only one kind of suit that's right for swimming and that's a 
birthday suit and she like leaps up and out of the river <laughs> it's, it's just wonderful beautiful stuff i just realized there's a guy i'm not gonna say his name to to save the anonymity of my cousin uh but uh there's a guy with the exact same name as my cousin in that fucking movie all right and and my cousin uh, my cousin was born in uh in arkansas so he uh, he is just straight up like from that movie, <laughs> you know. Well, I would so, find that to be if I were your cousin, I would find that to be a compliment because I would love to at least get to spend a long weekend in this environment. I would bring more than two bits and have myself a, a fine time in that house of ill repute. I'd bring a pocket full of nickels. I, I mean, well, and uh, Lorna Maitland's even willing to give this drunken idiot a, a quick glimpse for free. And it's one of the most erotic moments in the entire movie where Lorna Maitland just kind of very gently opens up her shirt and her boobs spill out like it's a fucking avalanche of flesh, like coming pouring down a mountain. You're like, Jesus fucking Christ. How, like, how do they even like, how are they even a part of your body? How do they work? Yeah, but Lorna Maitland, she's a, she's I a spectacular woman. Scene. Did I watch the Did I watch the edited version? Well, I sent you the the full complete cut, but yeah, when Hal Hopper's there and he's trying to, uh, yeah, he's trying to get them to give him a freebie, and they're like, and they basically yeah, they're not willing to give him a freebie, but they are willing to give him a, a quick peek, and it's just at that moment I fell in love with Lorna Maitland forever. Well, and I just <laughs> love the uh, the lighthearted nature of the movie too, and that scene is really just fun. And just you know. a lot of beautiful, I mean, you want to talk about gift-worthy moments, seeing Eula bathing in a little bucket outside. She's got like a hose and a little faucet, and she's standing in a bucket and just in profile. But it's, this movie's got more nudity than some of the other ones, but it's, yeah. her character's so innocent that it's not depicted like in a super, I mean, obviously, Russ Meyer was infatuated with the actress playing that part, but it's not pornographic. It's just beautiful yeah. naked he loves getting people out in nature almost like adam and eve showing them in an mm. innocent naked fashion yeah and i wouldn't say any of his movies uh it's it's weird like even the ones like the uh mondo topless you know things like that they almost feel like uh it's like a travel like yeah yeah like <laughs> national geographic you know, then they do uh, pornography. Yeah, Mondo Topless is a worthless movie, but it made vast sums of money. Like, Mud Honey was a failure. Faster Pussycat Kill Kill was a failure. And Eve gave uh, Russ Meyer a very hard time about making what, in, right. in her mind, a good movie made money, a bad movie lost money. She's like, well, how dare you make these bad movies? So he went off and made Mondo Topless. The coffers were full again. Eve was thrilled. And he's like, all right, well, now we can buy a new Cadillac. And Eve won't get on my nuts about making bad <laughs> movies anymore. But yeah, but it's sad that Mud Honey, as interesting and entertaining as it is now, it was kind of lost on people at the time. Sure. I, I'm almost glad he did it in the way that he did. Because if he would have continued doing the gothic-type films, I think they would have gotten a little bit tired. They would have gotten know, repetitive. After a while. Yeah, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, Lorna and Mudhoney are very similar. You know, they almost bleed into each other. It's a great double feature, and you've got a lot of overlapping cast, and it's, sometimes it's hard to remember which scenes are in which movie. Uh, right. So I, I think with, uh, you know, with uh, his, his uh, gothic period, the black and white period, and then going right into something com completely different, you know, that was a little more money-focused. I guess Vixen made a bunch of money. Vixen was one money. of the first X-rated movies, and it made, I think, more money than just about any of his other movies because it has the great uh, Erica Gavin, and she's just an absolute goddess. But, man, Vixen, 
go, it's in color. It's got incest. It's got interracial relations. It's got all. It's got like anti-communist propaganda. It's got all sorts of crazy shit thrown in there. Vixen is bananas, but it's one of my one of my personal favorites. <laughs> well, yeah, and just to uh, you know, give a little background on X rating. Uh, when people think X these days, they think like triple X. Yeah, they think porn. And up. back, yeah, yeah back then, uh, I would go to the movie theater. When I was a kid, actually, Dan, I've seen, seen a few X-rated movies, but I would go to the movie theater and they would have like a, a PG movie, like a G movie, like Peach Dragon. They would have an R-rated movie and they would have an X-rated movie. Yeah, like Midnight you Cowboy know? or Girl in a Motorcycle. These are yeah. kind of like art house movies in a lot of ways and they are X-rated. Yeah, so it's basically that uh, that era's version of NC-17. Yeah. It was basically a movie that was... Uh, almost like a sanctioned by the ratings board because the X rating uh, came from the ratings board. Uh, so the, you know, if you went to the ratings board, you can say, well, we want to go for an X. Uh, so that's, that's what he was doing. So his, his idea of uh, making X rated films as opposed to triple X rated films was his way to stay a public entertainer. Absolutely. He did not want to play on and like, you know, I've never even been into a porn theater, but he did not want to play in porn theaters. And the fact his movies are equally at home in a drive-in and at an art house theater. And I think it's what is that interesting. Oh, he's one foot in both worlds where I could go to the film forum, the most snobby movie theater in New York and easily bump into a Russ Meyer retrospective, or you can go to the seediest grindhouse imaginable. And I, I love filmmakers who are able to keep one foot in both worlds, because there's so few. Most people are either all in on one or all in on the other, and Russ Meyer was determined to maintain this broad appeal, and it's what made him so successful, But which leads us to Motorcycle, which was a huge fucking hit, has the least sex and nudity of any movies we're going to be discussing, but it's 1965, Mr. Cornish, what, is, what the hell's going on in Motorpsycho? What the hell is that? It's an old abandoned pit mine. Some sort of a natural crater nearby. The Indians used to call it the cauldron. They believed it was a place where their spirit guards made magic to cloud or clear the heads of men. <laughs> you could use a little of that judge yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's open. Here, take the knife. Cut it. Cut the knife. Cut the fang marks open. Cut him. Make little X's. Cut him. Look at him and do it. All right. All right. Take it easy. Go ahead. Cut the fang mark. Look at it. Two X's. Some more. Some more. All right. Put the knife down. All right. Suck it. Suck out the poison. Suck it. Some more. Some more. Suck it out! Suck it some more! Some more! Spit it out! Spit it out! Some more! Man, this is really nowhere. What did you expect? Well, this one was my least favorite. I think uh, the reason it was my least favorite is it was more male-centric. Uh, it's got yeah. Haji. Haji's ad- adorable. Yeah, yeah, she. Well, yeah. 
Uh, I thought you said Haji. No, it's got ha- <laughs> Haji was a regular. Haji's in Super Vixens. Haji's in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. She's a yes. huge person in uh, Fast Puts Get Kill Kill. But Haji was one of his regular collaborators for a long time. Yeah. Brad, so Bradley, they, can we get through a podcast without you mentioning Haji? Haji is a dog movie. I. It makes me. It, it touched me when I first saw it, and I think about it a lot. <laughs> so, anyways. Uh, uh, with motor with motorcycle, I gotta I gotta tell you to be honest with you, uh, that's one where I watched a scene and then kind of like sped through it a little bit. Is this you the Night Riders it. of the Russ Meyer filmography for you? <laughs> this is basically Night Riders, you know. And well, they both have motorcycles. I think you just don't uh, like biker movies. What's your favorite? You know, I can tell What's your you favorite biker much, movie. I can tell you this much. Uh, my favorite biker, E.T. E- yeah, but it seems like you're between Night Riders and Motorcycle, like you, you, you are anti-chopper. Anti you know what, though? I'll say this much, and this uh, I don't know if this will heal all the open wounds, but I think Night Riders is a much better film than Motorcycle. Shots fired. All right. All right. Okay. I think Motorcycle is also my least favorite of the four because yeah. I do enjoy – the strong female characters. And, and Russ Meyer, he's got a very complicated relationship with his audiences due to his strong female characters because there are some feminists who hate his movie because they think he's a misogynist and he's exploiting women's bodies. Right. And there are other feminists who absolutely love and adore his movies. And there are some who have reversed their opinion on his movie. Like, they'll see his movies in the 70s and say, he's gross, he's disgusting, how dare he? And then they'll watch his movies again in the 90s, like, oh my God, these girls are empowered and they do what they like and they're strong and they mm-hmm. kick ass, etc. And I think he's at his best when he employs strong female characters. And as much as I love the actress Haji, her character in Motorcycle is not one of those badass, strong Russ Meyer women, which I think is yeah. what holds it back. But it does have the distinction of being right. Alex Rocco's screen debut. So if you oh like, God. if you like Mo Green, here he is oh, yeah. making his screen debut, and I think he's pretty goddamn good, especially when he, he has the rattlesnake bite scene. He's like, "Suck it out, suck oh, that's it out, a good, suck it that out." That was uh, what that whole movie, <laughs> that movie had a beginning, an end. And that scene—it's it's a special <laughs> scene, you know. Basically, that was what the whole fucking movie was to me. It's funny because you would think like his just straight exploitation films would feel more pandering, but this one right. felt more pandering, you know, to the times. Like it's like a than, wild, like a Wild Angels kind of movie. Yeah, than than any other film. So I think he he made this movie more than any of his other movies uh, for. For the paycheck. Well, seemed like every time he had a flop, he was very, very savvy about bouncing back with a very commercial movie. Like, oh shit, I'm, I had a misstep. Let's bounce back and get the coffers full again. And that's what Motorcycle is. But Mr. Pullen, what are your thoughts on Motorcycle? So I thought one of the interesting things, especially given that this was 1965, and you know, it. Um, I always thought it took a little longer for the the Vietnam. Uh, era, you know, uh, PTSD as we call it now, to work its way into movies. But the the main villain, the main uh, motorcycle in this, is a. Uh, see, came back from from Vietnam. We gotta wait and, for orders from the chopper. He's got that weird high yeah. voice, but he loses <laughs> it. <laughs> that was and good. He's, he's having these uh, these flashbacks, and he's obviously suffering from you know some type of post traumatic. St- uh, stress, which was very, again, very surprising for me to find this theme in 
a movie that I thought was going to be about boobs. Wasn't that also a little bit uh, to do with Knight Riders a little bit? It wasn't there. I, I mean, I can't even remember. Maybe I just like <laughs> don't like PTSD movies. Well, I imagine it's something Russ Meyer was familiar with because obviously in World War II they just yeah. called it shell shock or battle fatigue. Yes. Right. So he would have been sensitive to it, and so obviously, yeah, it, it makes sense that he would put it in there. Interesting, but it was uh, definitely, just uh, def- definitely my least favorite of the bunch. Well, yeah. it's got a and great scene with Haji where I love how she's about to be um, like murdered by one of the bikers. And she says, you don't want to kill me. You want to make love to me. And she rips off her clothes <laughs> as jazz kicks in. And granted, it's shot from behind, so you don't see anything. But Haji, it's definitely, that's like the most like Russ Meyerian moment of the flick. If you're, lo- if you're looking for the, for the great statuesque, beautiful girls, that, that is your moment. Yeah. Of course, she kills him with a knife in the back like five seconds later. So, <laughs> Well, I always carry around like a little Bluetooth speaker with me everywhere because when i rip my clothes off i like to play jazz too it's a it's a little uh it's not as it's not as uh impactful because i have to say hold on for a second like while i'm taking my shirt off russ meyer's a great figure speech when you rip your clothes off he calls it dropping your laundry it's like yeah so if you, it's called just yeah you drop your laundry everything's coming yeah. off all at once and you're ready for action but dan i cut you off i, I feel like you were about to say something about motorcycle and i didn't I think, though, if, if there was a weakness, especially if you're going to compare um, Motorcycle to Faster Pussycat, it is in the in the gang. I mean, uh, what's it, Stretch or Slim, who's the guy with the transistor radio? They they could have killed him way sooner. Yeah, that's the actor who played P.I. in the TV movie, A Lonesome Dove. That's his first movie. No. Yeah, oh. that's P.I. Oh, I missed that one. Interesting. Yeah, 20 um, years that, earlier. That's yeah. a fine, fine book. Oh, it's one of my all-time favorites. It's uh, right there, right up there behind oh, me, wow. on my shoulder. Yes. I let's uh, let's talk about Western novels for the rest of the show. <laughs> I mean, I occasionally do these giant Western episodes with David Lambert where he leaves me uh-huh. in his dust. Because I, I like reading some Western books and I love watching Western movies, mm-hmm. but David really knows fucking Westerns. But I do want to tackle Lonesome Dove at some point, the show and the, uh, and the novel. But trying to get somebody to want to read like a 600-page book for an hour podcast, that's asking a lot. So I'll need to find somebody who already knows it and loves it so that I'm, it's not such a heavy, heavy task. But I don't want to get yeah. sidetracked with Laird McMurtry while we're on the subject of Russ Meyer. But um, hang on. Oh, here it is. Uh, there's a great line by Haji about working with Russ Meyer from this film. She says, Russ worked with a five-man crew, and he took us all into the desert with snakes, lizards, and all kinds of danger. He thought if you were a guy, you could live in a tent out in the desert, but the ladies he treated better. We lived in a trailer. When you shoot in the desert, you come back with dirt in your eyelashes and hair. Our shower was a big barrel with a cork in it set up on four sticks. You pulled the cork out, got wet, stuck the cork back in, soaped up, pulled the cork back out, rinsed off, and that was it. So that's life for a beautiful actress like Haji on a Russ Meyer set. That description, uh, that I think it was mostly due to your delivery and your uh, silky voice, but I kind of got aroused well, well, I can't do her Italian <laughs> accent. Her, I mean, I, and I think the Italian accent is totally fake because uh, when yeah. you watch her in interviews, she just talks she's like... She's Canadian. Oh, she's... You know what? <laughs> I mean, I have no ear for accents, but in Faster Pussy Got Kill Kill, I found her accent plausible i mean i'm sure tony stella's like it's you're an idiot terrible. but it, what they reminded me of when i when i was a kid i lived in uh, southern california in anaheim and there were these the the coolest chicks uh that i went to high school with uh they were it was like uh, uh they were filipino uh girls filipina girls and there was just a a group of like four of them they were like all cousins and they all just dressed like badasses 
and they I loved hanging out with them. But uh, the uh, the gals uh, Tura and Haji totally reminded me. So the Haji's voice like caught me off guard because I kept uh, she reminded me of these girls that I used to hang out with. Mm. You know, in high school, I, I hung out with some cool cool ladies, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. If you want one. Ladies and gentlemen, go, go for a wild, wild ride with the Watusi cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. For your own safety, see faster pussycat. Kill, kill. Wild women, wild wheels. Race the fastest pussycats and they'll beat you to death. Superwoman, belted, buckled, and booted. yourself on this kid and hanging us up for nothing. For nothing? It's got nothing to do with the money. She is the money. Jack and Jill, they make the mafia look like brownies. Hey, he's a big one, ain't he? Mm. Got muscles all the way to his ears. Yeah. 10% of your action be enough for anyone. Too much for one man to handle. And again, you never can tell. You girls a bunch of nudists or you just uh, short of clothes? Right now, you're first on my list. And I always try to talk. You've only got one channel. And your channel's busy tuning in outside. You really should be AM and FM. So who do I get to take care of? The muscle man? You got two of everything. And some left over. You did want. You wanted big. Right. Or thigh, darling. Why don't you take one of each, son? They uh, both look tender. He's got a big motor to feed. But if you eat this, my motor never runs down, baby. You were too rough the last time. All right, here's how it works. Everybody's got to go. You name it, we've got it. Faster pussy that kills delivers tons more than the opposition. Unladylike karate chops, ungentlemanly haymakers, spirited gymnastics, corrective table etiquette, sandbox jousting, or a muscle-bound cat wrestling with a roaring sports car that's intent upon squashing him like a grape. Bizarre kidney and chassis rattling chases, and for the first time on the screen, a haymaking, belly busting, karate chopping, judo flipping fight to win them all. Superwoman against man. The prize, life itself. Slashing, tackling, gouging, hacking, flipping, belting, smashing, and blasting. Muscle to muscle, bone to bone. For an incredible evening's entertainment, a film so totally satisfying, see Russ Meyer, faster pussycat. Kill, kill. All right, well, and since you've introduced the topic of Tura, let's get into it. This is a movie that John Waters yes. famously described as, beyond the doubt, the best movie ever made. It is possibly better than any film that will be made in the future. And I'm, of course, talking about Faster Place to Get Kill Kill, probably one of the most notorious, popular, beloved cult classics ever made or will ever be made. And Haji introduced Russ Meyer to Tura Satana, who's I mean, she's the, the John Wayne of exploitation movies. She's this giant, statuesque Asian girl who kills people with karate chops with large sexual appetites and that sort of thing. And there's never been another movie <laughs> quite like it. So, Bradley, I'll let you have the floor first. If somebody's not seen Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, sell, sell them on why they should check this movie out. If you haven't seen, seen it and sell them on it, 
Uh, it is give, give the pitch if you're if you're standing outside a theater as like a carnival barker and you're trying to get people to come in and you're going to try to use like a Russ Meyer slogan to get someone to come in. How would you sell them on buying a ticket for Faster Pussycat Kill Kill? Can I do a funny voice? Sure. <laughs> we we let Dan play guitar. You can do voices. <laughs> no. Uh, so what what I like about this movie is there is uh, enough. Uh, randiness in it. You know, there's enough uh, rough, rough play, I guess you would say, <laughs> uh, between the actors. Uh, there's uh, enough, like, violence and uh, there's enough to look at uh, that's intense, but there's not so much of it where I wouldn't be afraid if my aunt watched it with me. Yeah, you anybody know, it, can watch this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, yeah. To, it's totally virtuous and wholesome. <laughs> but it, but it, it, but it's virtuous and wholesome. But it's also fucked up. You know, it's like uh, it, it. Your girl's a bunch uh, of nudists, or you just short of clothes? <laughs> yeah, so it's just a Meyer. Meyer had the, like this ability to, you know, sh- like he's a total pervert. You know, um, actually, I mean, apparently, it, according to the women he was involved with, it's the opposite. He had this like well, old-fashioned meat and potatoes notion of sex, where right. sex was kissing, stomachs pressed together, humping, right. and like like no oral sex, no doggy style, no nothing. It was just people squished together, just wiggling. And so I think uh, he was pretty vanilla when it came to sex. To me, to me, that sounds pretty perverted, actually. <laughs> Uh, but um, he, uh, with his description. Well, you're the Mr. Golden so, Hour, so which is like we said, one step away from the Golden Shower. So we know, we know how you roll. I hate doing podcasts. <laughs> I, I get so much shit, Dan. Uh, but anyways, it's my own fault. Uh, so with, uh, with, I love doing your show, by the way. And I, you know what? Pile it on, motherfuckers. <laughs> I can take it. Uh, so, uh, but you know, with uh, with Russ Meyer, if you listen to his interviews. He has, he's always saying, I'm a tit man. You know, he has no problem. You know who he reminds me of a little bit, Dan Poland? Who's that? He reminds me of, of our good friend, uh, James. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On, on, my best, on my best day, I might be worthy of uh, being compared to uh, yeah. the, the gnarled up toenail on his gnarled up pinky toe. But uh, I appreciate but, the but, praise. But the thing I do like about James is he has no problem. Letting, letting us know when he's on our show. He's like, hey, keep playing that clip. I'm aroused. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And that's, uh, if you listen to, uh, if you listen to Russ Meyer, he has, he has no issue whatsoever. But then he turns around and he makes these movies that have a, a wholesomeness to it. Maybe, maybe that's what you're saying. Maybe the guy isn't like the guys at the at the beginning of Faster Pussycat in the strip bar. Go, baby, go! Yeah, go, go! And those are actually real dudes. Yeah, uh, yeah. The actress know, who plays the, the blonde—I think her name is Billy—in the movie. She says she was quite caught off guard because Haji and uh, Satana—they came from this world. They were dancers on a nightly basis. They, they were very at home in that world. Would dance till four in the morning every night. But young Billy, she was quite new to this. And when those guys started saying "Go, baby, go," she was like, "Oh my god! Like, what kind of movie are we making?" But the, yeah. they just—that's the way I love. Like, they all have their own style of dancing. And how Haji has her little thing, like a belly dancer, kind of swaying back and forth and doing her little finger dances. And Tarasatana is like upside down, bending over backwards, kind of lunging up and down. It's the most bad. I'm going to say it right now. It's the best opening to any movie 
ever. You have that crazy well, voiceover narration. The voiceover. Then you have the dancing, and then it cuts to the driving with the rock and roll music. It's yeah. just balls to the wall insane. Well, that fucking, that beautiful, uh, I still like the beginning of Lorna because I think the narration just says so much about his, about Meyer. But if you listen to the narration with that graphic at the beginning of Faster Pussycat, yep. it's like it starts out with like one line and then it kind of, it's almost like a, it's like the outer limits a or something. piece of uh, pop art. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking, yeah. it's fucking gorgeous. And the, uh, the intensity of the language being used and he's doing that like weird, almost like pseudo apocalyptic narration, you know, that, that he does. And then that beautiful opening scene that reminds me of, uh, you know, movie from a noir film, you know, from the 1940s more than anything, you know, where you have that real dark lighting, you know, show a face where all you can see is, is the face. And then it shows the, uh, the jukebox and the dancers. It's very, uh, uh, very well thought out. Yeah, the first you know, and well cut. two minutes lets you know precisely what movie you're watching. And mm. if you like that first two minutes, you're going to love the movie. And if the first two minutes does nothing for you, then I got nothing for you either because I think it's just gloriously entertaining. But Dan, here we are 20 years later since you and I both discovered this flick back in college or a little bit more than 20 years has it uh, aged well for you, or what? What, are, what? How do you look at Faster Pussycat now as a seasoned podcaster versus a starry-eyed youth discovering it for the <laughs> first time in the background of a party? Well, I wouldn't go quite as far as uh, John, but I do think this is an all-time classic. Um, you know, you, it's such a great formula. You have just three badass women in badass cars who uh, they're not, they don't try anything. They just do, right? And everything they do, they do hard. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, you, right from, from go, right from Welcome to Violence, um, and, you know, through the opening, it just never stops. It never lets up. And these, these ladies, you know, what you were talking about before, uh, this is this strange almost feminist picture because they they take from the world what they want uh oh she has another line they'll take it if they want the man they'll take it they want to kill a guy they kill him they want to kidnap a girl they'll do it like there's zero hesitation to pursue precise it's it's pure id all the way or is it pure ego i always forget which one's is it the id or the ego which holds you in check and which is your primal impulses it's been a long time since I studied my Freud. Yeah, I know. In any event, I think, they I think are it's... pure, raw, primordial urges with right. unin- uninhibited by any sort of concerns regarding civilization. Okay, oh, you shit. guys are giving me shit for talking about Larry McMurtry. You know, now we're going into like the id, the ego. What the fuck? Exactly. Well, she's, she's got another great line. She says, uh, uh, someone asks her what she wants and she goes, everything or as much as I can get. Right, yeah. right. It, yeah, she did. She's absolutely a, a, a female embodiment Varla. in some way of Meyer. You know, it's mm. his uh, uh, Teresa Tana as Meyer's Kyle McLaughlin. And what's great is how they, <laughs> you know? she was one of the only people who ever won a battle against Russ Meyer while making a movie. Notoriously, as we mentioned before, <laughs> right. you're not right. allowed to bone on his movies because he wants you to focus on the task at hand and he wants you to be horny, which I, I get. If you really want to be people that are trying to make the most erotic movie possible, you don't want them 
satiated <laughs> on the front. But Turner said, look, yeah. I need it every night or there's going to be hell. Like people might die. So you tell me who's going to be. And so they eventually they let her pick one person from the, and the crew wasn't very large. She said, well, I think the assistant yeah. cameraman looks strong. So he, she just, she selected him. I don't even know if he had any choice in the matter, but every night he had to Probably try and not. satisfy well, Dan's, her appetites. Dan's the same way. He's like, sometimes he'll show up five minutes late for a podcast. Cause he literally before and after every show, he has to drop a load. He's got to bust it. When you drop a load, I feel like that's taking a dump. But if you bust a load, I feel like no, that's like, you know, rubbing what, one out. No, he, uh, that's what we call it. You know? <laughs> oh, oh, maybe that's what it is. Uh, I think he's doing something else. And I think he actually is going to the bathroom. Yeah, he's doing both Never mind. simultaneously. So, Ooh, that's, Dan, Dan confuses That's next me. level kink if you're combining those two activities. Oh. But the, uh, the screenplay, I think, in this deserves a lot of praise. There's so much dialogue. It's so goddamn oh, funny, God. especially Billy. Billy is like the ultimate. Chicken hawk, where he just if she sees a man, she's just like, I mean, she's like, look at that hunk of whatever, like that hunk of stuff. Yeah. But my favorite line is when she says, "You got two of everything and some left over," and she's just shamelessly <laughs> gawking at him and like rubbing him and just eyeing him up and down. And she spends the entire movie trying to make this guy who's mentally disabled, yeah, boner. He's got the mind of a child, but the muscles of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And all Billy wants is to have a roll in the hay with this guy. The uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stop fucking with Dan, but anyways, the uh, uh, Tursatana I think is one of the uh, I guess uh, biggest mistakes uh, uh, made in filmmaking. Uh, let me make them. Let me make some clarity. Some clarity on that. Not yeah. a mistake, as in she is a mistake. But at the end of Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill, uh, she's lying dead, uh, spoiler, uh, after being hit by a car. And uh, they're getting into the truck and he's saying, oh, we don't have to worry about it. She's, she's dead. She's, uh, uh, she's a monster, you know. And uh, it, who is a stupid motherfucker who didn't realize, like, oh, you know, we could take her. And literally have her wake up in the same spot and go on and terrorize another another group of people in <laughs> one film after another. Well, she, she, could have been, she could have been hired in one movie after oh, yeah. another. It didn't have to be Varla. No, it had, no, it had to be that because <laughs> it's a J, she is such like a Jason, you know, that could have been. I'm serious. She could have been like uh, if the world would have been ready for Tura Satana – you know, if the world would have been prepared for it, we could have had a string of incredible fucking movies where she's going into town, just uh, get, rolling in the hay with unsuspecting dudes, karate chopping people in the fucking <laughs> larynx, throwing knives in people's backs. You know, God only knows the wondrous things well, that she could have been done. an Asian Pam Greer, basically. It's a missed opportunity. I think it's a giant yeah. missed opportunity where she didn't have like a Fred Williams career, Fred Williamson career. Or just any of these people who made a lot of exploitation films in the seventies. She exactly. sh she should have been right there with them, and for whatever well, she reason, she did some stuff with Ted V. Mickles. Yeah, but it just didn't, you know, it just like didn't... Uh, the Astro Zombies. But it was, it was like yeah. ultra low budget, you know, and uh, something that I think was uh, not that I'm giving those movies you know shit or anything, but uh, I think she was uh, definitely a uh, higher level. You yeah, know, she deserved and, better. 
Yeah, she, yeah. she definitely deserved more notoriety. Or who knows? I mean, she might have gone back to dancing after this and been making vast sums of money on that front. So maybe she was just fine doing her, her previous vocation. I honestly don't know. But I, I certainly would have, uh, wouldn't have minded seeing five to ten more movies starring the great Tora Satana because it's just a wild, uninhibited performance. And she gives zero fucks about what anybody thinks about her. <laughs> and she's just, she's just delightful to watch in action. But what do y'all think about yeah. the fact that it's not overt and there's no specific line of dialogue, but that Haji didn't know until well into the shoot that her character is the girlfriend of Tarasatana's character, Varla. And watching now watching a recent, I was like, oh, it's completely obvious how deferential she is to, to mm-hmm. Varla. And Varla is basically like, you know, the alpha to her beta or the yin to her yang. But you can totally tell that they're involved in a lot of ways. But obviously Varla is more than happy to take that tall, skinny redneck to, like, in, to the hay pile as well. But that, I thought that was an interesting t- – for people who like to pigeonhole Russ Meyer as this kind of red-blooded, all-American male, here you have the ultimate like feminist action movie starring two lesbian heroines. So he's strangely very progressive by, by today's standards, yeah. even though he'd be horrified to hear me try to uh, describe him as such. <laughs> but I, th- I, I love that part. And, uh, you know, I can – I could see John Waters watching this movie and that probably sealed the fucking deal for him because he, the, the part that sealed, sealed the deal is uh, almost uh, everybody in John Waters films has like this, uh, like this questionable yearning for each other. You know, it's like, uh, well, so he like Russ Meyer liked to cast freak shows in his movies. And apparently John Waters really took inspiration from the fact that, Russ Meyer loved to find these degenerates or just bizarre-looking people and throw them in his movies. John Waters is obviously very much doing his own thing, and he's got his own style and his own direction, but you can definitely see the influence of Russ Meyer on his approach. Well, if you look at multiple maniacs, and if you look at the the filming style, it actually kind of has a a similar look, you know, where it's really overlit, in some ways, and there's a lot of uh, outdoor uh, photography, but it is I can I could see that there's some uh, some influence there uh, there for sure. Gotcha. You know, it's a beautiful movie. We're going to be covering that uh, a couple of shows from now, maybe a couple of weeks from now, and uh, I can't wait to talk about that movie. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful movie, and I think uh, in the same way. You know that Myers is pigeonholed as just doing the one thing. Uh, Waters is pigeonholed as just doing the one thing. But I think the, the they pope, are the pope of trash cinema. Yeah, yeah. But I think uh, you know they've made some of the some of the best American movies that have ever been made, in my opinion. Agreed. Well, yeah. Dan, since you're our local guitar player, what do you think of the theme song by the Bostweeds, the Faster Pussycat tune? <sighs> You know, uh, didn't really didn't really hit me uh, too hard because I can't even recall it to be honest. Interesting. All right. You know, it's funny. Um, um, I have a weird thing with with uh, movie music, even though I should lock into it. Like like our friend uh, Jay Blake Pashera is a phenomenal guitar player and musician, um, and he obviously locks into uh, music. It's largely something that doesn't even register for me. It becomes like almost like a piece of the scenery. 
uh, and I don't unless it's a big theme. Well, I remember after you saw Mandy, you immediately ran home and started uh, memorizing the uh, the tune that opens the flick. What's it called? Us? Oh, Starlight. Yeah. What's it called? Or... Yeah, but that that's that's by King Crimson. So right, that's that's uh, right when. See, it's funny because you know I was sitting in the theater with my brother for there, and you just hear the. I turned him. I go, Starless, and uh, he's like, "Oh my God, you!" So yeah, I. I don't know what it is about music in movies that kind of just washes away, and I I, I generally don't hear it. <laughs> All right, <I> <laughs> fair enough. But I do, yeah, that's the thing with Motorcycle is a lot of the uh, the music in Motorcycle to me almost seemed kind of canned and a little generic. Well, then the '60s yeah. had a lot of that surfer guitar music. Like, who's yeah. that guy yeah. who just died the other day? Who? You know, Dick Dale. Yeah, like I think he was such a hero at that time that there were a lot of kind of piss poor imitations and that sort of thing. But it they're was just all the, they're all shitty. Yeah, imitations. if you wanted to play at the yeah. Grindhouse, if you wanted to play at the drive-in theater, and you're playing to kids making out in their Cadillacs, that was it. Was always like you kind of your go-to music yeah. because by the time this movie comes around, Russ Meyer's in his forties. I seriously doubt he gave two shits about pop music, contemporary music at all. Just like, what's going what's gonna to bring in the kiddies? But yeah, he doesn't strike me as somebody who was necessarily well, that preoccupied with... I think, I think he likes jazz more than anything because the great striptease sequences always have like a big tenor saxophone, mm-hmm. like just a, a good, just kind of throaty sound. And so it seems like jazz and sex for him always go together and humor and sex for him always go together, which I find delightful. Sex shouldn't be so serious. Everybody should have a smile on their face. Well, his uh, sort of, uh, I, I don't know what you call a confrontation with the Sex Pistols or with Malcolm McLaren. Yeah, you know, the, shot for uh, like five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> who killed Bambi? I think it was, yeah. but he, yeah. uh, he, he knows <clears throat> at least enough about music where the uh, the one uh, uh, Jonathan Ross uh, documentary near the end mm-hmm. of that he is talking about it. And he basically accused, uh, I think he accused Malcolm McLaren of killing punk, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. Russ Meyer. I, yeah. I was imagining, I, you know, uh, like a fist fight with, <laughs> between uh, Russ Meyer and Malcolm McLaren. It just made me so happy. I just wanted, you know, the end of uh, the Bambi movie just to be like, and then the whole thing just collapses. Well, McLaren had that frizzy hair back then, so I mean, an army guy or or a military guy would be able to just grab him by the hair and just yep, yeah, like three punches, just a, just a kill, cold cock. But McLaren does more. seem to speak very affectionately and very fondly about Meyer in that interview. So it's a shame that that project didn't come to fruition. But I think by that point, Russ Meyer's interest in the film industry was starting to wane. I mean, 1979, Beneath the Veil of the Ultra Vixens arguably is his most deranged, intense, over-the-top movie. And actually, it's linked to the creation of the podcast, Wrong Real, when my two original partners in crime and I went and saw that at the Anthology Film Archive. We had an absolute blast, and we were hanging out talking afterwards, and shortly thereafter, the three of us came together to create this podcast. So Russ Meyer is at the core of what brought Wrong Real into this world. Wow. Yeah. How about that? Uh, yeah, I, I can't even remember what... Uh, what brought us together, Dan, but I'm sure it had a lot, uh, a lot more sadness than, than, uh, James's story. 
<laughs> well, one last thing I do want to call attention about, about Russ Meyer is just how many um, roles he likes to perform on his movies. He loves to work on the script sometimes he writes them, sometimes he collaborates. He loves to shoot them. He's not always his DP, but he loves to operate the camera. He often uses editors, but he also likes to cut films. He's largely self-taught. But here you have a guy who likes to write, he likes to produce, he likes to edit, he likes to shoot, he likes to work with actors. He really is kind of a, a jack-of-all-trades, and there are not a lot of filmmakers out there who exercise that degree of control. I mean, even great filmmakers will have their regular DP or their regular editor. And William Goldman has this brilliant line from Adventures in the Screen Trade, and they open that, uh, that documentary with this line. But he's talking on and on about how it's a bullshit thing to say a film by because there's so many roles on a movie. How can you say a film is by so-and-so if they're one of 400 people? I, I'm more of a believer in the auteur theory because you can see a consistent vision over time. Yeah. And so, but William Goldman wasn't willing to make this concession for us. Mr. Russ Meyer, he said, is there then no American auteur director? Perhaps there is one, one man who thinks up his own stories and produces his pictures and directs them too. And also serves as his own cinematographer, not to mention he also does his own editing. All of this connected with an intensely personal and unique vision of the world. That man is Russ Meyer. So there you have it from William Golden, William Golden, one of the all-time great screenwriters for Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and Marathon Man and Princess Bride. And, you know, beloved, he recognized Russ Meyer for what he was. He's a, a singular artist with a singular vision and a singular worldview that's unlike any other filmmaker before or since. And the world is poorer for his absence. Wow, that was a that, yeah. He, the Ron Reel is a much better podcast than I understand. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. That's oh pretty, shit! Well, that's for sure. Speaking of our my, your podcast, we're starting to bring this sucker in for a safe landing. Tell me what episodes y'all have in the can. What's coming up? Like, what what do y'all got cooking in the oven? Because it seems like y'all's output right now, y'all are definitely cooking with grease, as my as my dad likes to say. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, the only thing we have in the can right now is uh, a Suave. Uh, Mikle's uh, Suave episode uh, and that's going to kick off a series where we're going to do Cemetery Man uh, and the church and possibly the sect and uh, we actually added uh, two new permanent brains to Four Brains One Movie uh, we've always had we started out with four people the idea is you got four people you watch one movie you get four distinctive points of view and basically uh first show a great uh, probably the guy who would have made us all famous left the show and then frankie Sachs uh was on the show for a while but she was in sweden uh stockholm and so it, it was almost impossible yeah, she was on my left. episode the french extremity episode oh yeah. yeah and she's wonderful and she was a hell of a lot smarter than me and dan yes and uh but basically i mean dan he's a really nice guy so an asshole like myself can pretty much just uh, the, the talk the whole show. So I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of. I, I want other people to to speak their opinions on Four Brains One Movie. So we added Ricky Sprague, who's a fucking uh, wonderful guy. He's a cartoonist, brilliant writer, and he directs uh, directs animated films as well. And then we added Mr. Andrew Hawkins, who's also a podcaster. Uh, he hosts Freaky Fandoms. Wonderful guy, knows a ton, ton uh, about a ton of uh, horror and exploitation, uh, underground, experimental. Uh, so I think we have some great flavor. And basically, I am now hopefully only going to be uh, 20 
5% of the mouthpiece of that show. But uh, uh, Dan and I are going through the alphabet uh, with cult horror exploitation films with 26 movies from hell. And uh, that's been uh, one of the funnest things I've ever done. I've learned more about film uh, in the last few months than I ever have with this Especially podcast. Especially George A. Romero's masterpiece, Night Riders. <laughs> I think the emotional scar tissue is still new on that topic. Yeah. yeah. It's like if I, if you, if Dan's ever on the show, he's like, Hey, uh, uh, I am now the only host of the show because Bradley's in prison for murdering 18 people. You are on the you receiving know? end of a Twitter dog pile, which is not fun, but it, it happens. And the, the, no, not murdering those people, but actually <laughs> like running, like getting a fucking plume. And getting a, a, a like uh, armor, and I probably wouldn't be able to operate like one of those like open throttle fucking motorcycles, you know. So so I would probably just uh, maybe one of those motorcycle motorized bicycles, okay. you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd be driving around that and basically uh, just killing people. You know, that's okay. what's going to happen. We'll start because with the people I, who use their phones in movies, and the world will be a better place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what's the deal with that shit? They think they're in their living room. And now, I think also now where checking your phone has almost become a nervous tick, like somebody who's constantly brushing their hair aside when they don't need to, or like, yeah. you know, picking their nose or whatever. They don't even know they're doing it, but just every couple of seconds, they have to glance at it just to see who i don't know it's it's a weird thing but i, I know people they look at it and then they don't they don't even do anything on it and it's like I, I, anyway it, it annoys the fucking shit out of me but if you want to go on a murderous rampage start with those folks yeah you know jerry seinfeld has this great bit about how he's like whatever you want to show me i don't care like just tell me what's but tell me what's on your phone but i don't want to see anything on your phone i don't want to see a picture a website video anything just tell me I, i'm sorry it's on my phone i didn't hear what you said dan and i totally were on skype Dan had his phone up, and then uh, I had my phone up, and we were both acting like we were on the phone. And uh, James is such a professional; he didn't even he didn't even notice we were uh, yanking his chain. Well, I'm looking right at y'all. I can see what y'all are doing. <laughs> he just didn't think it was very funny. That's all. It's, <laughs> are my my I know that my jokes are not funny on other people's podcasts. Are they this bad on our on our show, Dan? Well, sometimes people oh, are yeah. funny because That's they're funny, the whole... and sometimes people are funny because they've got great like dum bum like one-liner kind of things and so everybody's sense of humor is different and i think you're at your funniest when you're just being bradley cornish yeah well, well thank you that's that makes me feel a little bit better a little yeah, less but it's sad. also it's also your saddest so <laughs> yeah <laughs> well dan do you have anything to add do you have anything to add about y'all's current slate y'all's current output of all y'all's content um yeah you know we're well we just put out that lovely k episode with our great guests so uh we got some more uh great people lined up for uh l and m we're going to record next week um our, our we're booked winners, up all the way through booked up all the way through you yeah booked nice. you today so yeah and then we have fucking xanadu which, uh, Which is but you're all gonna do like some like giant like live stream kind of group chat thing or what? But y'all have some sort of grandiose plan yeah. for Xanadu. I mean, I what know. else I'm do you do for X? 
Uh, yeah, I'm going to observe your uh, your spectacular uh, Bill Scurry's uh, Dune spectacular. Oh, the live stream coming up YouTube. on Monday? Yeah, I mean, it's something I'm going to be doing a lot more of. I was nervous for a long time about getting over the technological hump to figure out how to do it. But today, Adam and Bill and I got on at the same time, and I think we've got most of the kinks worked out. And if it goes well, it will allow me basically to merge more freely my podcasting and my YouTubing into one singular output oh wonderful and so it's something nice. but it's uh, i i don't like feeling like being pulled in two different directions so more and more i want to kind of try to fuse the two into a nice synergy so this is the first sure. step in that direction yeah i'm going to watch that and i'm going to watch uh, how you guys handle that technology maybe we'll do something as spectacular as that dan for the xanadu episode that'd be fucking awesome yeah well, where can folks find you on Twitter if they want to talk about Xanadu or M or any of y'all's other uh, episodes you have coming up? Dan knows all this. Would you like to share this, Dan? Yes. Uh, you can find uh, me at, at Dan Pullen Books. You can find 20... Wait, uh, the reason it's Dan Pullen Books is because he writes uh, fucking uh, bullshit coming-of-age stories. Bullshit coming-of-age stories. It's a specific genre that I am the Catcher in the Rye uh, was the bullshit coming-of-age story. Yes. So 26 Movies from Hell is at at 26MFHpod. Uh, at, let's see, Four Brains, One Movie is at... Jeez, oh, <laughs> it's the number four and brains and, and one and the number, le- one, number one and movie. movie. Yeah, there yeah we go. I knew you would fuck it up. That's the only reason why I asked you to do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, and then I'm Bradley through. J. Cornish uh, at tw- uh, Twitter. Beautiful. Yeah, that is uh, Bradley J. Cornish. So, Well, guys, yeah. I always love and adore getting to record with y'all. I definitely yeah. uh, feel like um, y'all appreciate my juvenile sense of humor in the best possible way, and that we can just, you know, drop our laundry and hang out and just uh, just relax. Oh. And, <laughs> and it's always good times having y'all on. So thanks again for coming on Wrong Real and ranting and raving about Russ Meyer with me. Thanks yeah, for thanks, us, thanks for having us. And Dan's got to do what he always does after every show. So enjoy that, Dan. Right. Indeed. Yeah, you're going to drop and or was it drop or dump <laughs> a load? What was what figure speech all you used? <laughs> I don't know. I just say. Blow a blow. I think blow a load. Yeah, blow, yeah. Blow, drop slash. Blowing uh, a load blow. almost sounds like you're blowing your nose. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's going to do something. I say rubbing one out because there's zero Whoa, that's ambiguity. It's very specific. <laughs> no one, rubbing out can't mean anything else anything else because you don't rub out a, a deuce and you don't rub out anything out of your nose. You only <laughs> rub out one thing. So it's very clear what you're, what you're talking about. I have a friend that gets all of these sayings confused. And I, I can imagine him saying rub out a deuce. Hey, guys, I got to go rub it. <laughs> Well, we hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. Please consider giving us a rating, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, my personal profile at Colbrax, and my aforementioned YouTube channel is Geeking with James Hancock. And uh, yeah, we got a big live stream coming up on Monday, March 25th, and it'll live on the channel afterwards. If you can't be there at 9 Eastern, it'll still be there. But Adam Rakoff and Bill Scurry and I are going to be ranting and raving about the past, present, and future of Dune, which should be a lot of fun. But can't thank you enough for listening to this podcast. Greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.